1: I'm Sean Elling, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. That's a weird question to ask, but we ask it all the time in this country. America is uniquely obsessed with freedom. You can see it in our politics. You can hear it in our discourse. But we're also, strangely, a country full of fortunate people who are constantly fretting about their lack of freedom. Why is that? There isn't a single answer to a question like that, or even a good one. But a recent book by Sebastian Younger searches for one anyway. The book is called Freedom, and it orbits around a long walk Younger and a few friends took several years ago. They hiked up hundreds of miles of East Coast railroad lines. Carrying everything they needed on their backs and sleeping wherever they could. Everyone involved had experienced war and they were looking for ways to process that trauma and maybe also recapture some of the emotional intensity of combat. Younger later documented the trip in a 2014 film called The Last Patrol.
2: I first went to war when I was 30. I went to Bosnia and I went partly because I was searching for a career and war reporters seemed kind of interesting and exciting and romantic. But really I went because I felt like I wasn't a man yet. I felt like I'd never been tested in any real way and that if I went to war, it would change me and make me strong and mature me in a way that I wanted to have happen. That's what i understand about war is that it has the power to do that while it has the power to also destroy you
1: in the book younger weaves the account of the hike with various stories from history everything from labor strikes to women's resistance movements to bloody battles with apache raiders and while that seems like a lot and it is in the end everything comes back to a meditation on human freedom and all the ways we seek and defend it. In this episode, I talked to Younger about what he was searching for out there on the railroad lines. Like the book, we cover a lot of ground. The meaning of personal freedom, what we owe other people, why these things are bound up with each other, and how becoming a parent changed how we thought about freedom in our own lives. Sebastian Younger, welcome to the show, my friend.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: Okay, so you wrote this very lovely meditation on freedom, which is based on a hike you took several years ago up the East Coast, and you also made a a documentary about the experience called The Last Patrol. And we're absolutely going to talk about all of that. But first... I do have to ask, um, and this may seem like a strange place to begin, but bear with me. You almost died recently, right? What yeah. happened?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've almost died a few times in combat. I've come very close. But strangely, that wasn't that upsetting. It wasn't that traumatizing. What happened in my own driveway a year and a half ago was very, very traumatizing, precisely because, I, you know, your home is, it feels like a place of safety, and I'm in good health. And I just, you know, I don't think I'm at any kind of medical risk. And I had a freak medical event. I had an undiagnosed aneurysm in my pancreatic artery, which is a very small artery. And it had ballooned out and no one knew. It had no symptoms. And this had taken place probably over the course of many years. Yeah. And one fine day, it ruptured. And I felt a sudden pain in my abdomen. And within a few minutes, I couldn't stand up. And within about 10 minutes, I started going blind. And it was my blood pressure plummeting as I bled out into my own abdomen. And um, by the time they got me to the ER, I'd lost probably three quarters of my blood. Um, I had a hemoglobin level that was so low, you can barely find it on the internet. I mean, I was told that I I arrived conscious at the ER with vital signs that were incompatible with life, is what I was told. And I I was on the threshold of death, and they cut my neck open and put a line into my jugular and pumped 10 units of blood in me and brought me back from the precipice and then took another six or eight hours for them to sort of find the leak inside my abdomen and plug it with a catheter embolism. But it's the kind of thing that regularly kills people. It, it's not that common to survive this. And, you know, I, the doctor said that I survived it only because I'm in good shape and I have a strong heart and I didn't start to go into organ failure the way many people might have.
1: Good Lord. Were you clinically dead even for a minute or two or no my heart
2: didn't my heart didn't stop it never got to I mean I think I was a you know minute or two away from that point yeah the last thing I said to the doctor as he was working on my neck to get a line into my jugular I found myself being pulled into this dark pit and I didn't know I was dying but I knew I didn't want to go down there and that that was a very bad place to go I mean my mind wasn't working very well obviously I had very little oxygen in my blood So I was pretty loopy, but I knew I did not want to go down into that pit. And it's a little like trying to get your dog to go into the vet's office. Like, I don't want to go in there. Don't make me go in there. That's how I felt about the pit. And my dead father appeared above me. And, you know, he, he was a physicist, a completely rational person. And I'm an atheist and a completely rational person, or at least I strive to be. And he showed up to welcome me. And I wanted nothing to do with him. I mean, I was just like, I didn't want to get anywhere near him. I sort of waved him off. And the last thing I said to the doctor was, you got to hurry, you're losing me right now. And then my memory is very spotty. I have some memories over the next eight hours. But I was in an enormous amount of pain because I think my kidneys were failing. My back was just in agony. You know, when you put 10 units into someone and all that dye that they use in a fluoroscope, your kidneys can't keep up. And I was absolutely in agony. And they couldn't give me any anesthesia because my vital signs were so low. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a horror show. And the next day I woke up in the ICU and I had no idea that I'd almost died. It was the ICU nurse that, that told me that I was shocked and, and, and quite traumatized by it.
1: Coming that close to nothingness has to alter your conception of freedom, or at least shake up what it means practically in your everyday life. I, I imagine.
2: Well, I've, yeah, I mean, I've, what I've always known is that if you're not safe, you're not free. If you can be killed yeah. by other people, if you can die, you're not free. And first and foremost, your your sense of freedom comes from your sense of security. And you get that from being in a group of people. I mean, just in sort of evolutionary human terms, humans don't survive alone in nature. We're social primates. We don't have sharp claws or sharp teeth. We can't run very fast. We can't climb trees worth a damn. We can defend ourselves from predators and, and from other humans because we live in groups. And as soon as you live in a group... You have to abide by its norms and you're not free from the norms of the group. And so this sort of weird idea that there's some theoretical state of freedom where you can do anything you want and no one can tell you otherwise, and you're free from danger and have the benefits of living in a society, in a community, it's complete nonsense, right? That complete safety and complete freedom really do not coexist. You you get your freedom from being in a group and you have to respect the group's wishes.
1: And yet there's a, well, there's a lot of, I think, interesting paradoxes in all of this. One of them, and you know, your book is organized around these three chapters titled Run, Fight, Think, and you toggle back and forth between accounts of this hike that you took and these very interesting historical episodes that illustrate in different ways how running and fighting and thinking are different ways of preserving or defending freedom. But a recurring theme, to me, at least in all of it, and I think this is even more apparent perhaps in the documentary is how much more alive we feel often in the presence of danger why do you suppose that is what is so intoxicating or so exhilarating about the presence the imminent presence of real concrete danger
2: well i mean any kind of threat or challenge requires sort of all hands on deck both for a society for a group and for the individual and you know i think in modern society the human animal is vastly underutilized. We're an extraordinary species, right? And things that are adaptive in an evolutionary sense feel good to us. So when we figure out a problem, right, we get a little dopamine bump. When we connect to other people, we get a little oxytocin bump. When we win a volleyball game or a duel, right? I mean, you know, it it can be real violence as well. Men get a, a surge of testosterone. So winners... Men who win a fight get an extra dose of testosterone, which, of course, keeps them more prepared to fight the next time around and more dominant. And so it's a sort of feedback loop. But all of those things feel good. And if something feels good, it's probably adaptive in an evolutionary sense. And so when you live a life where you're never under any kind of challenge or threat or hardship, you don't have to figure out any problem, you're really just going through a well-worn routine, you know, that plays to one sense of stability and safety that humans understandably seek. But what completely falls by the wayside is our amazing ability to defend ourselves and to think our way through problems and construct elegant solutions and to utilize our social connections to form a group that hopefully cannot be defeated or eradicated. And that all of those things are just intoxicating to humans.
1: I've heard you say that you need things in your life that scare you. Do you still feel that way or did uh, almost dying for the last time? Is that scare enough?
2: Oh, you know, I think in general people, I don't think it's just me, I think in general people do. I mean, that's why they watch horror films and war movies and all that. I mean, our national obsession with things that are scary, you know, of course, people would rather the surrogate experience where they're not actually in danger, but they're watching a situation in your brain. When you're in a movie, your amygdala doesn't know you're in a movie. It, it thinks that you're actually in the situation that you're watching, right? So the grizzly bear attacks and roars and your amygdala goes into fight or flight, but you know, very quickly, your mind catches up and you're like, don't worry about it. You can enjoy this. You're not actually in danger. And so people love to put themselves in situations where they can experience those intense, vital emotions, but actually not risk losing their lives. And, you know, so for me, my first exposure to risk, real risk, was that I work as a, a high climber for tree companies. And so I would, you know, when I was in my 20s and early 30s, I would work 50, 60, 80, 100 feet in the air on a rope with it running chainsaw taking trees down in pieces. And the interesting thing about that is you can definitely get killed up there, but the only thing that's going to kill you is a mistake. Like, if you do not make a mistake, you will not die. It's like in chess. If you don't make a mistake, you will win the chess game, right? There's no random roll of the dice or pick of the cards that loses the game for you. You lost on your own because you made bad choices, right? And likewise in tree work. If you get hurt, bro, you did that to yourself. So that sense of agency and the control of the outcome. Uh, of a dangerous situation is I found completely intoxicating. You know, unlike the random risk of driving, which is totally un or flying a you know, passenger in a plane, because it's totally unnerving because there there's a random element and you're just playing sort of Russian roulette with the universe. And you know, and then after that, I was a war reporter, and you're definitely playing some sort of Russian roulette with that. But I was quite smart about it, and the journalist role in a war to me was so meaningful. The idea that you're sort of telling the people back home what's going on in Bosnia or in Afghanistan or in Sierra Leone or wherever it may be, that you're in that position. It's not so much the risk of that situation, it's the role that you're in as a communic- a messenger, you know, the, the sort of Hermes of your society rushing back with the news. That to me was really almost sort of addictive. And now I have, you know, I'm fifty-nine, I have two young daughters, you know, four and a half and and almost two. And so now danger has zero appeal to me. I mean, forget it. Like I don't even cross against the light when I cross Houston street.
1: Oh yeah. We're going to come back to your, your daughters. I'm, I'm a new parent as well, but we'll get there in time. Yeah. Um, but before we do, you know, you took this hike, what three, 400 miles, something like that up the East coast. You know, I-, I wonder why do the hike at all, right? You're a, you're a fortunate guy. You have a great life. You can do whatever you want. Why walk down hundreds of miles of railroad lines in the heat and cold when you don't have to, what the hell were you chasing out there?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And so, I, you know, first of all, sometimes I avoid the word hike because it sounds so law-abiding. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we were trespassing on uh, railroad property. The police were looking for us, you know, once they were looking for us with a helicopter, and they never got us, right? But then, so we were basically, we called it high-speed vagrancy. We walked, hiked, trekked, marched 400 miles from D.C., along the railroad lines, from D.C. to Philadelphia and then turn west. We were going to go to New York and we got bored with the East Coast. We we're like, oh, let's go into the interior. Let's turn west. And we headed for Pittsburgh. And um, you know, most nights, as I say in the book, we were the only people who knew where we were in the world. And that's a form of freedom. We were sleeping under bridges and abandoned buildings and getting our water out of creeks and cooking over campfires and dodging the police. And walking through ghettos and industrial wasteland and wilderness and farms and suburbs and everything else. And we really got to see America from the inside out. I was with a few other guys who had also been in a lot of combat. And we were all in different ways trying to unhook from that, from whatever it was psychologically that we needed from combat. We were trying to unhook from that. And um, I had no idea I was going to write a book about freedom. This was many years ago that I did this trek. We just did it because we wanted to be outside of our lives and in a sort of like strange, raw environment. We didn't pick the Appalachian Trail because that's where you're supposed to go. And it's removed from society. It's beautiful. It's wilderness. But it's removed from society. What I liked about our trek along the railroad lines is that it goes right through society. And you're you're in this sort of marginal role. You're sort of like half homeless, half fugitive. And there, there was something about that that was really... An intriguing sort of chess game for us
1: you write that the things that had to happen out there were so clear and simple eat walk hide sleep that just getting through the day felt like scripture a true and honest accounting of everything that underlies the frantic performance of life what is so satisfying about that kind of simplicity that kind of bare existence
2: you know i think our lives in our society right now are very distracted. They're very anxious. There's a lot going on. You're, everyone's multitasking a million things. I mean, one of the reasons I have a flip phone instead of a smartphone. God bless you. Is I, yeah, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I've never had a smartphone. I I just don't want to be distracted like that. It feels inhuman. It feels like it's anxiety producing and it feels like it makes people unhappy. Like I see people walking around buried in their phones. They don't look joyful i gotta say and the fact that we exist should be a source of incredible joy and maybe not at every moment you know i mean there's lots of painful moments in a person's life and yeah. but just if you sort of stop and think oh my god i exist and my children exist and here we are and who knows how much longer this will last but we have this right now right and it the iphone strips people of the ability of achieving that kind of existential awareness which of course is the point of most religions like most religions try to get you to focus on the miracle you know what's called the miracle of life the miracle of existence and the iphone sort of like as does the television as does alcohol and drugs and addiction in general i mean it, it sort of removes you from that miracle and sort of mires you in this sort of self-fulfilling cycle of of obsession and removal and it, i find it incredibly depressing
1: yeah i think stripping life of all those contrivances and trivialities and gadgets, forcing yourself into a situation where you can only deal with with what's right in front of you, that does bring a kind of clarity to life. And I don't mean to romanticize hardship. I don't think you do that either. But I am saying there's a kind of liberation in simplicity, even if simplicity means fewer choices and maybe a little bit more discomfort. But you know, speaking of comfort and choices, I... Knowing ourselves, being content with who we are, I think is pretty essential to being free. And you talk about the struggle to define ourselves in a consumerist world, just saturated with choices and diversions and cheap satisfactions. You don't quite say this either in your book or or you came close to saying it just now, but you don't. But I'll ask anyway. I, I do wonder if you think we're too comfortable to be free, if we're too estranged from our natural environment to be free, really?
2: Well, you know, there's many different ways of defining freedom. One is to be free of oppression and violence and danger and suffering and hardship. And, you know, those are, those are very, very important forms of freedom. Another very important form is to not be in a situation where you have to make forced choices, where someone more powerful than you can dictate the choices that are available to you or the choices that you have to make. In, in other words, they're not really choices. So at the end of the day, I, you know, many people feel that the ultimate freedom is within. It's the one freedom that cannot be taken from you, right? So this gentleman is not in my book, but at one point I, w- I was able to interview a guy who'd done, I don't know, like tw- almost 25 years in prison for a terrible crime. He killed somebody. You know, and he came from a very violent neighborhood. I mean, all the sort of correlates of prison time were in his youth, in his experience, in his neighborhood. And he fulfilled that dark promise, right? I mean, he killed somebody and off he went to prison. And, you know, he educated himself in prison. He's an extraordinary man, brilliant, brilliant mind. Uh, He found religion. He really reformed himself and saved himself, I would say. And he got out of prison early on good behavior. And I interviewed him about two weeks after he got out. And I I said to him, at the end of the interview, I said, I feel a little silly for asking this, but is it possible to be more free in prison than outside of prison? Forgive the naive question, right? And he looked at me like I was crazy. He was like, are you kidding? Of course it is. Of course it's possible. He said, if you're in prison, you can't be a drug addict. You can't even be distracted by your iPhone, right? You got nothing but time. And eventually, you're going to have an honest conversation with yourself about who you really are and what you're doing in there. And when you do that, you're a free man. He said a lot of people on the outside never even have that conversation with themselves, and they are not free yet, even though they're walking around on the street. So there is that important internal sense of freedom. I didn't address it in my book because I feel like at that sort of like spiritual and philosophical level, so many brilliant people have addressed it already. I didn't want to climb into that ring and, <laughs> and fight those guys, right? Yeah. But, but basically, what I would, I would sort of break it down like this. If you and your people are in a position of being attacked and killed and enslaved and oppressed by an outside enemy group, your freedom is under threat. And that's been the ancient, enduring threat to most people's freedom for most of human history, all of human history. But if your society is well-organized enough, well-armed enough, martial enough to defend itself against an enemy, a larger enemy, a more powerful enemy, then it's well-organized enough and martial enough for an abusive leader to oppress his own people. So there are sort of the two basic forms of freedom that humans have always had to deal with, defending themselves from an outside threat, and then making sure that they can live in a basically fair and egalitarian society where an abusive leader cannot oppress them and essentially turn them into serfs as happened in europe during the middle ages you know that awful system of a sort of power elite dominating a society with a large proportion of laborers and serfs who essentially have no legal right no political right really no economic rights that finally ended with the advent of democracy you're like there are no leaders installed like they are chosen by the people and they can be kicked out if they act badly
1: i'm glad you invoke democracy there I know your goal in this book and, and elsewhere isn't to weigh conservative notions of freedom against liberal notions of freedom. And I think I understand uh, as a writer why you want to avoid that. But I do think we can address this in a non-political way. And I'm going here yeah. not to get you to settle some ideological debate, because I do think there's a really crucial tension that we, we have to touch. And the tension is this paradoxical relationship between freedom and obligation, but. And you write in the book, and I'll just quote you here, for most of human history, freedom had to be at least suffered for, if not died for. And that raised its value to something almost sacred. In modern democracies, however, an ethos of public sacrifice is rarely needed because freedom and survival are more or less guaranteed. And shortly after that, you write, the idea that we can enjoy the benefits of society while owing nothing in return is literally infantile. Only children oh, nothing. Why did you think it was so important to make that point and to make it so bluntly?
2: Well, because I, you know, I feel like there's a strange idea in American society right now. And I think it's because we're not under any direct threat. And because we're not under a direct outside threat, it's possible to imagine our own government as a threat. Yeah. And so there's this idea that's sort of arisen that, You can live your life without ever being told in any way what you can and can't do. It's complete nonsense, right? Humans have never lived like that, right? And even people that think that, they, like good little doobies, drive on the right-hand side of the road, and they know they can't drive on the left-hand side of the road, and at a red light, they stop because they know if they don't, they might kill somebody, and if they don't care about that, they might kill themselves... And if they don't do that, they might get a ticket, right? So everyone's very carefully sort of obeying all these rules. But some people think that the government actually doesn't have a right to regulate and to enforce and to create strategies that benefit the greater good. And the great thing about a democracy is if you think that the government is overreaching and the government's great at overreaching, right? I mean, it's not like it doesn't do that. I get it, right? But if you think that that's the case, you have recourse. Uh, You can go to the courts. Or you can vote the bastards out. You can go to the polling booth, right? But the one thing you can't do in a democracy is use violence to change an outcome. I mean, as soon as you use violence to change an outcome, you're actually creating the opposite of a democracy. You're on the road to fascism. And the one exception that I actually, I think I might want to insist on is that there is a history in this country of protest movements that have sometimes turned violent. And these movements are, they're groups of people insisting on their basic rights, right? And the labor movement of 100 years ago, the civil rights movement, like, you know, these protests sometimes were violent, but sometimes it takes violence to get the attention of an immoral government that's not interested in actually acting in a free and fair way. So it's a very, very tricky thing to say about violence, but... There are times when the government is just not responsive that, you know, violence will get attention and redress.
1: The American obsession with freedom has always seemed to me confused and incomplete. Is freedom something you possess or is it something you do? That's what I'll ask Sebastian Younger after a quick break.
0: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors Inc.
1: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. com box look I guess I'll just say because I can't help myself but I, <laughs> I, I have I've always thought of freedom as an activity not a condition it's not something you have it's something you do there's a tendency especially in our culture, American culture, as you just alluded to, to think of freedom as freedom from. To be free is not to be tyrannized by some outside power, and that's fine. But it is incomplete, I think. You can be free of tyranny, but if you're destitute if you're abandoned if you don't have agency because your most immediate and basic needs aren't being met you're not free in any meaningful sense of the word and i say all that because it's why i think we're obliged to care about the condition of other people if we believe as we say we do in freedom as a universal right okay that's the end of my rant i promise
2: no you're no you're absolutely right and I, i didn't go into these contemporary issues in america in my book because The issue of freedom, it doesn't change that much over the ages, right? And I was trying to write a book about what allows humans to maintain their autonomy in the face of a more powerful group, right? So throughout history, very disempowered and often very mobile groups were able to evade or outfight larger dominant groups that wanted to oppress them. And the extraordinary thing about humans unlike any other mammal, is that a smaller individual or a smaller group can actually outfight a larger one. And so I wanted to understand how that works. Like, how do we maintain our autonomy in the face of a more powerful group? And sometimes that more powerful group is your own government. So the labor movement 100 years ago, you know, there were totally disenfranchised foreign workers working in the textile mills in Massachusetts, and they faced down the National Guard and the corporations. And the government, and they got the laws changed, right? And one of the ways they did that was incorporating women into their ranks. And once you put women on the front line of a protest, the cops often do not dare use mass violence. They're way more willing to do that against men. And as one frustrated policeman said in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1912, he said, one good cop can handle 10 men, but it takes 10 cops to handle one woman. And that changed the sort of tactical dynamic on the streets that allowed those protests to succeed. But let me just sort of like add to that what i was saying about freedom from an enemy or freedom from oppression within your own society those are the classic conservative and liberal concerns conservatives are concerned with an outside threat and liberals are much less worried about outsiders in fact they're often quite open to them culturally what they're worried about is internal unfairness right so if you take those two concerns and you marry them together in one society, you have a society that can both protect itself and run a fairly equitable system, right? Either one by itself wouldn't work very well. And there's actually a lot of data. There's a wonderful book. I'm looking at it right now in my bookshelf, Our Political Nature by Avi Tushman. I read it. Yeah, yeah he collects all the studies that show that our political predilections are partly hereditary. About of the variance of our political opinion comes from our genetics. It's inherited. And that to me means that a basically conservative or liberal viewpoint had to have been adaptive in our evolutionary past. And when they're in roughly equal measure within a society, you're at this sort of sweet spot where you can defend yourself and you're running a society that's fair and therefore stable.
1: Yeah. You know, this theme of groups, of community, of solidarity was at the heart of your last book, Tribe, which was just fantastic. Thank you. Which is very much about combat soldiers and then transition back to normal life. These soldiers come home and that intensity is gone. The sense of immediate and overwhelming purpose is gone. Even the title of your documentary about the hike, to use that word again. Uh, <laughs> the last patrol. Gestures at this longing to recapture the emotional experience of war. Was that something that was clear to you from the outset? Or, or did this part of it become clear once you were out there on the road with your friends in the elements?
2: Oh, no, I knew how it would work out there. I mean, listen, the interesting thing about having to like find water is that it creates the proper value for water, right? If you can just get water by turning on a faucet, It doesn't have any value. If you have to go looking for it, suddenly water has value. Suddenly being warm has value. Being safe has value. And I know that the only way to sort of survive and function effectively in a sort of raw environment like that, you know, particularly the semi-industrial one that we were in, which had all kinds of social threats as well, you know, was to be in a small group that was quite loyal to itself and where people were willing to do very hard things to make sure everyone was okay. And since I wrote the book Tribe, I sort of had this thought. I was like, "What's? how do you define tribe? Like, you know, it's one of those elusive words, like freedom. Like, you try to define it, and then it sort of squirts to the side, and you're like, no, that's not it either, and you can't quite pin it down. I was like, oh, this is tribe. What happens to you happens to me. I will make sure that whatever happens to you will happen to me too. We're going through this together. And that's what this small group that I walked with along the railroad lines, that's very, very much how we were. And, you know, at one point, you know, we had a 110 degree heat index and, you know, one guy really started falling out and, you know, we were all carrying 50, 60 pounds on our back, right? Even 70 sometimes if we were loaded up with food and we had to get where we were going. And and so one of us said to the guy who was falling out, listen, man, I'll take your pack. So he put 60 pounds on top of 60 pounds And strapped it on and walked that way until the guy who was having trouble felt a little better. He took his pack back, right? So that's what happens to you happens to me. We're in this together. And, you know, what I would say about my book, Tribe, yeah, the third chapter, I sort of talk about soldiers because that's sort of the most immediate current topic that the public is sort of familiar with. But actually, the beginning of the book, I'm talking about how community works and why the tribal community has always been so appealing. Right. So along the American frontier, there are many, many cases of young people like young Americans absconding to the natives. Right. Running off to join the natives. And as Benjamin Franklin himself lamented, there were no examples of native peoples going in the other direction. Right. So this is a white Christian society that thinks it's superior. But actually, people were sort of voting with their feet, as it were. And all of the migration was towards the tribal, right? And you didn't have the church breathing down your neck. You weren't behind the plow 12 hours a day, plowing up some rocky field. You didn't have these awful sexual and social mores of colonial society. And, you know, interestingly, all the way around on the other side of the world, the Great Wall of China has always been thought of as having been built to keep out that sort of like barbarian hordes, the nomads on the steppe right, that would invade the Chinese empire and, and destroy everything. And obviously that was an element, but what many historians now think is that the wall was also there to keep people, impoverished Chinese farmers, from fleeing to nomadic society. And, and nomadic society is always more equitable, uh, more egalitarian than sedentary agricultural society, where you can accumulate wealth and pass it on through generations and the beginnings of class structure start with agriculture. And so what the early Chinese were trying to do, keep their own people from absconding to the native peoples across the wall as well.
1: It will probably strike some people as a bizarre, even ridiculous question. But do you think the soldiers that you embedded with in Afghanistan, and maybe even yourself, felt freer, maybe even happier, than a lot of ordinary people living ordinary, safe lives?
2: I don't know if "free" is quite the word. I mean, there were a lot of constraints out there, particularly for the soldiers. You know, they're you're in the military, you're in a rank structure, and there's always someone above you who can tell you what to do. And but I will say that a lot of them really missed it. Yeah. And I mean, the problem with society. One of the problems with society is that it's vast, it's mechanized, it's disconnected. No one feels appreciated, and no one even knows if they're needed right? In a platoon in combat, you know, platoons 30, 40 people. In the case of the platoon I was with, it was all men and it was combat infantry. It was all all men. So in that case, everyone in that group was needed, right? And there is something really intoxicating in being needed by your group and fulfilling that need sort of honorably and courageously. Like there was something incredibly gratifying to that. And so a lot of these guys that I was out there with, really had a kind of nostalgia for that year. As miserable as it was while it was going on, afterwards, they really missed it. And I think what they were missing is the proper and healthy functioning of community in a dangerous environment, right? That's our evolutionary past. And they were exposed to our evolutionary past. Humans have mostly lived in groups of 30, 40, 50 people. That's a platoon-sized element, right, for most of human history. So it resonated, evolutionary sense, it would have resonated very deeply with these guys. But then I you know, I found out, I did some research on the Blitz of London, and I'd always heard that after the Blitz, people missed it. People in London missed the days of the Blitz. I was like, ah, oh, that can't be. I mean, the city was getting bombed by the Germans every night for six months. They lost 30,000 people, civilians, men, women, children, right? Like, how could you miss that? Well, one of the things that happened was that during the Blitz, the situation was so dire that everyone was needed right and class structure class distinctions started to sort of disappear they became unimportant i mean if your building can be bombed flat and you die in the rubble does it really matter if you're rich or poor i mean that the danger sort of made everyone the same and that is something that humans long for and as one london official said in amazement mental health improved during the blitz admissions to psych wards went down during the blitz because people were too busy where they were needed and they didn't have time to think about their psychological issues, right? So one one London official said, we have the chronic neurotics of peacetime. And we all know those people, right? Said so the chronic neurotics of peacetime driving ambulances. Like they were needed and that released them from their psychological troubles at least for a little while.
1: Yeah, I mean it sounds bizarre. I, you know, I grew up on the Gulf Coast in Mississippi and Louisiana and I was here when katrina struck and i remember how devastating that was and i've been here for several hurricanes but there is, as awful as it looks on the outside there is something unbelievably elating and satisfying about this period of time after like my family's home was destroyed i mean this whole community was just in tatters but you have this period of you know six months or so where all the bullshit just kind of fades away and, and and everyone has to come together to deal with the stuff we have to deal with and all the kind of petty things about life that consume us and our attention just just melt away and it becomes everyone knows what they have to do everyone feels tighter and closer because our interdependence is suddenly way more obvious and it's it's in a weird way again not to romanticize crisis and and strife but there is a sense of solidarity and meaning yeah. that, that you experience in those times of crisis um, that you just don't get in the banality in the comfort of everyday life where you're just kind of stuck with your own neuroses or whatever.
2: Yeah, I mean, I know people in past Christian, Mississippi, and yep. which may, you probably know the community, and yep. they, they said that they missed it. Like the aftermath of Katrina, that they actually missed it. There was a lady who, she was a waitress in a diner. And the diner had all this food that was going to go bad and she just started cooking. And before she knew it, she was feeding a whole community and really kind of running the show in one of those little towns on the coast. And so her former life as a diner waitress must have seemed pale indeed compared to her sort of heroic new role, saving, feeding this community. And I think she went on to great things, right? I mean, it sort of like provided a sort of stepping stone to a a larger life for herself.
1: Yeah, you talk about this in the book, you know, where we've outsourced all the tasks needed for survival to the sprawling, nebulous society that we don't really understand and don't feel particularly connected to. But that stuff goes all out the window when, you know, the infrastructure and everything collapses. And it's just it's you and your family and your friends and your community and nothing besides. It just it clarifies everything in a way. Few other things do.
2: Yeah. The way humans have always lived is in a tight community facing adversity. And the miracle of modern society is that adversity has all but been taken away. It's been supplanted with economic adversity and social injustice and a rigid class system and, you know, a kind of corporate tyranny. I mean, America, it's a democracy. It's an amazing thing, but a little bit too much of the levers of power can be pulled by corporate interests for my comfort in terms of thinking we live in a really free society and you know most of human history i mean my book is divided in three sections run fight and think and basically the first reaction to an outside oppressor someone who will take your freedom is to outrun them right i mean the apache remained free for 300 years after the sedentary pueblo tribes were rolled by the spanish immediately The mobile Apache were free almost until 1900, extraordinary, because they were able to run away and maintain their autonomy. If you can't outrun your oppressor, you're going to have to outfight them. And so the second section is about how smaller groups actually are very good at defeating larger groups. Uh, The Montenegrins defeated the Ottoman Empire over and over and over again, even though they were outnumbered 12 to 1. For that matter, the Taliban they didn't defeat the U.S., they just outlasted the U.S. until we got grew weary of fighting and left on their terms, right? And if smaller groups were not able to do that, as I say in the book, the world would be composed of fascist megastates that can do whatever they want, run by a very small elite that has society serve their interests, basically feudal society in Europe. But that's not what the world looks like. And eventually you're going to have to outthink your oppressor if your oppressor is your own government.
1: Sebastian Younger has spent a lot of time in combat, and his ideas about freedom have been shaped by the intensity of mortal danger. But what about on a personal level? How did his relationship with freedom change when he became a dad? That's after one more short break. Support for The Gray Area comes from Greenlight, If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free
0: Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: I'm very curious how becoming a parent, you became a dad, Pretty late in life, yeah. later than most. How did that change your life and your relationship to your own freedom, and, and how you thought about it?
2: Well, I, you know, I think there are different uh, experiences of freedom that probably correspond to different phases of life. And you know, when I was in my twenties, I wasn't even particularly interested in economic freedom. In other words, having enough money that I didn't have to worry about money. I was interested in physical freedom. Like being able to travel, being able to move around, not owing explanations to people for the way I was living my life. And that's a totally intoxicating form of freedom. But if you're still doing that at 50, I mean, maybe you're happy, but there's a chance you're not because you just were never able to progress to another phase. And I I feel like as you get older, you find meaning less from a variety of experiences and more and more from the same experience and you're going deeper and deeper into it. And so family is the ultimate example of that. I mean, you know, we all go to bed at 9 p.m. I mean, I'm not going, you know, I'm not going out to hear music. I live in New York City, right? Surrounded by New York, just thumping away out there, right? Very exciting place. I'm not going out at night. That To me, going to hear a band isn't the kind of freedom that it once felt like when I was young. For me, freedom is like the profound emotional freedom of being with my children, my wife, I don't want to be away from them. For me, freedom is not being away from them. And that would not have been true. Had I been a dad at 30, I don't think I would have responded that way. I had to, you know, it took a long time, my whole life, to be mature enough to see this as a form of freedom rather than as a as a form of constraint.
1: When did you decide you wanted to become a dad? I forget how how old were you when, when your first daughter was born?
2: Oh, I I'd always my whole life thought, oh, I want to have a family. And then, you know, one relationship after another didn't quite work and, you know, whatever. Life's complicated and messy and it just never worked out. It just never happened. And then, yeah. you know, finally in my 50s, it did. And and I was very, very lucky. That it was the best thing. This is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me in some ways in my life is meeting the right person for that journey and then having children like that. I mean, I've done a lot of things I'm proud of. I've written a lot of bestsellers. I've written whatever. I've done things that I'm very, very proud of. And had I not been able to have a family, had I not had a family of some sort, my life would have felt like a failure. It was something I really, really wanted. And now I have it and I can't believe, I cannot believe how lucky I am.
1: Your life may be less, I don't know what the right word here is, exciting or scary than it was before, now that you're a dad. But do you feel more whole, more contented, more free perhaps if I can use that word?
2: Well, I yeah, I, I feel freed from the compulsion to search for external stimuli. You know what mm, I mean? Yeah, it's a good way to put it. I remember being in my 20s like, oh my God, it's 10 p.m. I got to go out and have a drink and see what's going on out there. Like, yeah. that's a form of bondage. I mean, it's a form of freedom or it's a form of bondage. Like, oh, you need a constant novelty? Yeah. That's not freedom, you know? And so for me, it's like, yeah, it's freedom because I'm content with what I have. I'm not searching for something else. And that's a form of freedom, right? Like it's an internal freedom. It's the sort that I didn't write about in my book, but it's a very profound form of it. And that's what that guy who was in prison, I think, was sort of trying to tell me, look, look, he found his freedom internally. He was right with himself. It took a long time, but finally he was right with himself. And you cannot take that away. That's not that family is prison. I mean, I don't mean to say that at all. But, you know, my life is very sort of constrained geographically. Like, you know, I'm a completely bound by my family and we live in a very small apartment and we all sleep together on the floor, you know, like in this, I mean, it's a very small apartment, so we all sleep in a pile and it's like the family is one big organism. Like, I, you know, it's mm. quite, and, you know, I would say that is the ancient human norm as well. You know, like the individuals in the family are not disconnected from each other. You know, we go through things together.
1: Yeah. You talk a little bit about how I don't know if I want to say true freedom, but certainly a kind of freedom comes from no longer living for yourself, you know, when you're no longer the most important thing to you. And I would have struggled with this in my own life. I was very hesitant to become a father. My son is now two and a half. I, I think for a long time, I kept putting the wrong things in tension with each other. You know, do I, do I want to raise a family or do I want to be free? And in the end, I... That's probably a bullshit distinction i think for a long time freedom to me meant owing nothing to no one being responsible only to myself but that just doesn't seem right anymore the, the kind of love you're talking about living for someone else is deeply freeing because it explodes the wall between you and the world this wall built up by ego and too much self-consciousness and i i don't mean to judge Anyone who decides not to have kids, there's nothing wrong with that. There are many roads to freedom and happiness, and you don't have to have kids to be free or to love in this kind of way. But it's definitely one way, and it's the way I've gone, and I I guess it's the way you've gone as well.
2: I mean, look, when you're young, living your own life and not living for other people is a profound form of freedom and very, very exciting if you just decide, you know what, I want to go to Morocco. I'm going to save up some money. I'm going to Morocco, right? I'm going to spend three months in Morocco and see what's going on out there. That's an awesome form of freedom. You can't really do that if you're a responsible parent, right? I mean, maybe you could, you could bring your whole family. I, I took my family to Liberia where I'd covered the war in 2003, and now it's a very poor but peaceful country. And we went back there when my eldest daughter was almost three. And it was an amazing experience to go back to that place, you know, in a family context. But, you know, what I would say is that when you have the freedom to be self-concerned, the thing you get along with that is anxiety, right? And I know that from combat, right? The soldiers experienced very little fear during firefights because they were so conscious of the role they had to play and they were so conscious of the danger that other people were in that they forgot to think about themselves. No time. Again, the chronic neurotics of peacetime driving ambulances, right? Driving ambulances through the bombing, right? This isn't just driving an ambulance you're driving through a German air raid, right? And when you're thinking about other people, you're freed from the sort of tyranny of self-concern and, and anxiety. And so, you know, when you live for someone else, you don't have to worry about yourself because the point of your existence is to take care of them, right? And that's true if you're a 240 gunner in a platoon that's in a firefight. And that's true if you're a parent. I had a, a brief terrifying moment. I, my younger daughter on my chest, and my older daughter, we were walking, and I was holding her hand. It was just the other day in New York. And um, I was on a little traffic island, and a car sort of accelerated out of nowhere and came right at us. And it was trying to get around a car. It was it was just a kid it was driving really stupidly. He was trying to get around a car that was going too slowly. But for a moment, he looked like he was going to kill us, right? And in that moment, I just had a moment to react or I kind of froze, and right before I tried to jerk my daughter up in the air so that the car would miss her, he swerved. Mm. But this was all within feet of us, right? And what was so interesting about that is that I was worried about my children. It didn't even cross my mind that I was in danger. This just wasn't relevant, right? Had I been by myself as a 25-year-old and that had happened, I would have been like, oh, my God, he almost killed me. I can't believe I would have been totally traumatized in a very different way, right? But when you're concerned about your children or about someone else, you're freed of this sort of ego. And you know, ego is an important part of our evolutionary heritage, but it's its own little tyrant, right? And you're freed of it. And I gotta say, it's, it's a relief.
1: Well, maybe one insight that comes from the experience of life as a parent is that maybe it's an even higher form of freedom to not need, to use your words, that steroid injection of danger. To feel free and whole in every moment, however mundane or extreme. Maybe real freedom is being totally at peace wherever and whenever you are.
2: Absolutely. And there's a lot of different forms of tyranny. There's the tyranny of the mirror. Do I look good? Can I go out? Am I, you know, like people tyrannize themselves with all kinds of expectations. And as you get older, like it or not, life takes that stuff away from you. I used to be like a really good athlete in college right? And I was a good distance runner and I'm 59. I can't run like that anymore, but I don't need that, that power, that athletic power to feel like I'm a worthy person. Like that life took that away and good riddance, because now I feel like, no, I'm good. I'm good just as I am. You know, it's an amazing liberation to feel that way. that kind of at peace with yourself.
1: Yeah. That feels like a really good place to end. So that's what we'll do. Sebastian Younger, I am a longtime admirer of your work and I really appreciated this conversation. So thank you for being here.
2: I enjoyed it, and congratulations on your child. Enjoy it.
1: Thank you. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. And thanks to Victoria Dominguez, the Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at Conversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode share it with your friends and please rate and review and join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.
0: More to do's less time and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals.